when the arrows start coming my way, it's like, he's not a real blues guitar player. I said, I never said I was one. I said, I love yes songs, okay? Okay, I learned all, I, I, you know, I, I love selling England by the pound, okay? I'm a Steve Hackett guy, okay? I'm a Michael Stanker guy. No one is born successful, and success doesn't just land in your lap. It's kind of like a math equation, zero equals zero. If you do nothing, you get nothing. Joe Bonamassa, he made his career. He didn't do nothing. This guy has worked his butt off and is still working his butt off. Becoming successful is about hard work, self-discipline, and perseverance. And staying successful is a continuation of that hard work, self-discipline, and perseverance. You can't set it and forget it. Now, Joe started his career at age 12 when he opened for B.B. King. And he had his own band called Smoke and Joe Bonamassa. He gigged around Western New York and Pennsylvania. That sounds like a boxer, Smoke and Joe Bonamassa. But only on weekends, since he had school on weekdays. He was a kid, you know? Since 2000, Joe has released 15 solo albums through his independent record label, J&R Adventures, of which 11 reached number one on the Billboard Blues chart. And Joe has earned three Grammy Award nominations and owns one of the most extensive guitar collections in the world. I love this guy. He always brings his A game, always crushing it at 150%. Joe Bonamassa. Thanks for having me, Ken. Did I say anything wrong? I got all the stats right, right? You got all the stats right. If you look up, because we've put out almost 45 albums between the live DVDs and everything. And one of the weirdest stats, and it's nothing, I, I think it's just by sheer attrition, one of the weirdest stats that people never realize is that in the history of the Billboard Blues chart, I hold the all-time record for most number ones at 25. And that's between the studio albums and the live record. They actually called us one day and said, you know, you just broke the all-time record. I'm like, we just put the records out. We don't care, you know? And especially now, you know, I mean, like the recording side of the business is we're in the free sample business. We're giving away, you know, cheese whiz and Triscuits at the end of the aisle at Vons, you know what I mean? It's like hoping somebody will buy something else. It's kind of almost like the horse and buggy business and the car showed up, it's gone. It's like, it's like records. I mean, people like come to me at shows and they'll hand me like the CD. And I've always been fastidious about like, you know, if somebody goes up to somebody who's been successful in the music business, like, hey man, I really believe in this CD, check it out. I'm really proud of it. You know, I'll always listen to those. The ones that I, sometimes don't listen to is when they'll come up to you and they'll give you the CD and they'll say, I like song two. Don't listen to song five. And, well, then why did you put it on there? You know, <laughs> just make an EP, you know, all killer, no filter. <laughs> oh my God. That's funny. I've never heard, never heard that one. That's great. <laughs> so um, what was your wow moment that ignited the passion in your heart and soul to be a musician and play guitar? I mean, why guitar? I mean, you know, all of that. What was that moment? My dad played. I'm the fourth generation of Bonamassas to make a living in the music business. My great-grandfather played trumpet, and he was in touring orchestras in the 20s. I actually have his trumpet and a picture of him in 1920 playing with the Mickey Kaleo Orchestra. My grandfather was in the military and worked for the post office, but he also played trumpet in like working bands back in the 50s and 60s. And my dad being a product of the born in the mid-50s, coming to age in 1967, 1968, 
wanted to play guitar like Leslie West. And next thing you know, he plays, he starts playing guitar and he wanted to be like the Beatles. And, and then I followed in my father's footsteps because there was always music around. And my parents have always been very supportive of anything that are, you know, both my sister and I have ever wanted to do. And I just, when I was four years old, I just couldn't put the guitar down. It was something inspiring about it. I, I, I loved the way it looked. You know, I loved looking at the albums and the pictures and people rocking out and old Fenders and Gibsons and, you know, Eric Clapton records and Stevie Ray Vaughan records. And that's basically that was the seed that started this entire journey. And, you know, my dad would bring me to like Italian restaurants in upstate New York where he had gigs and I would sit in for the first set, you know, on a Sunday afternoon. And once I did that and I actually got applause, I was hooked. That was around age eight. I started to sit in with my dad's band. And then by the time I was 11, I had turned pro. And now I'm staring down the barrel of 35 years in this beautiful effing business that we know is so damn easy for everyone. You know, the, the big thing is I had that support from my mom and dad. That's huge. That is huge. It takes something. You don't have to deal with that. If you've got somebody like, you know, I was talking to D. Snyder the other day and I mean, and, you know, Twisted Sister, he was wearing makeup and the lipstick and his dad was a state trooper. Right. He didn't get that support. Right. <laughs> it's a hard sell. Not, it's a hard sell. A hard sell. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. That's really cool. I mean, you could have easily gone in the trumpet, but of course, rock and roll, electric instruments was in our time, you know. You cannot discount. I mean, like, I'll, I'll be 46 this year. And a lot of people, my peers are the same age. We all, who all started early on guitar, whether we knew each other or not, we're all floored when Stevie Ray Vaughan came out. There was something about when Stevie hit the scene, it gave a B12 shot to the genre. And you're going, hey, wait a minute, you can have a beat up old guitar and it's still cool. And it was in the time in the 80s where things were transitioning from kind of 70s rock and roll to more image based music. And he just comes out and he's true to himself. And same thing with Mellicamp. He came out, he was true to himself. and cuts right through. So we all started because of him. And then you go down to do the deep dive with uh, Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck, the late, great Jeff Beck, you know, Zeppelin and all that. Next thing you know, you know, you're, you're jamming along for hours on a Saturday to a you know, Robin Trower record, trying to figure out how he got that whirly sound on his guitar. You know, it's like we had nothing to do. It snowed a lot. There was no social media. Okay, all we had was cassettes, records, and a dream. And there's a lot of me that longs for those days because it was simpler, it was more pure, and not everything ended up online. You know, you could make mistakes at gigs. You could F up and not have, you know, a pylon occur on YouTube. Yeah, that's for sure. A, a friend of mine, he played a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, a young kid from New York, and he got booked to play the national anthem on guitar for the NFC or AFC championship game, not this year, but the year before. So I was interviewing him on my podcast and I asked him, I said, like, dude, what was your biggest concern? Because I've done a couple of national anthem gigs and I just, I'm out. I don't want to do it. It's just too much pressure. And he goes, my biggest fear, and now he's 20 years old, maybe 21. His biggest fear was becoming a meme. And I said, that is so messed up. That if you make a mistake, like we've all made mistakes musically in life, that you will forever be tarnished with this mean 
thing that goes around and goes viral and everybody sees it and you think your life's ruined. It was like in the 80s, we didn't have that. Nobody cared. You know, it's like you play great. Maybe there was a guy with a video. If he had money and VHS recorder, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't going online. There's a whole different world we live in now. And we don't even know half of it. I mean, it's happening as we're talking about it. But that's that's very true. Now, like where I grew up, we had a barn on our property. So that was the band house. So like I, it was like it was me. I was like uh, school sports. I was always in the sports homework. And then it was band practice seven nights a week. We would hang. My parents were like open. Anybody can come over. It was a hang, but it was rock and roll band practice at my house. When you grew up, did you have a garage or something where, where people practicing at your house? So a lot of people, like when you tell them, if you, you really kind of date yourself and you give away your location data. Uh, when you say, we used to rehearse in the unfinished basement in upstate yeah. New York. <laughs> Concrete and pro tip. If you're going to rehearse in a basement, Okay. And you have multiple fender amps running at the same time, ungrounded, old ones. Okay. You need to wear rubber shoes before you go <laughs> to the mic and try to sing. Because what happens is you become the earth. You become the third prong on the plug. I learned that a couple of times, but it was great because I mean, like, I mean, the level that in, in which I used to play, even when like on the weekends, my parents and my sister were so tolerant of, of it. Because I would just go down there and blast for hours and they didn't care. They didn't care. They just they just saw something that I was really passionate about. And, you know, we would rehearse for our, our shows there. And it was just one of those things where it is what it is. You go with what you got and, you know, load up the car and drive to Buffalo. You know, and that was it. I had the same thing. I was lucky, man. I didn't realize how lucky I was until I heard other people's stories. You know, I'd be practicing all, all over the house, everywhere. You know, in the winter, we didn't, couldn't use the barn, so it was the living room. But, you know, they just dealt with it. So, I mean, you kind of already discussed it, but how did you make it happen? I mean, how did you become Joe Bonamassa? Because uh, I know you partnered up with your manager, Roy Weissman, and you guys were partners, which I think is an incredible story, how you guys are the ultimate team. And I think, you know, if you think about teams win Super Bowls, you can't do everything yourself. And it sounds like you got a great partner. He does what he does great. You do what you do great. And together you create, like you co-elevate each other to greatness because you're both doing great stuff. And it's an incredible team. Thank you. I've always been blown away by that. When I heard that story, I went, that is cool on so many levels. But how did you become Joe Bonamassa in, you know, in a nutshell? There's been three moments of truth, okay, for me in my career, maybe four. Roy and I have been together for 32 years, 1991. He was 22, I was 12. And we've been together 32 years, which is if you ask around in the business, how long is your how long has your manager been around? It's like, oh, you know, we just hired them last year. You know, like I mean, it's, it's like marriage. They don't go past four or five years anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know. So we've been together for 32 years. And we got signed to a development deal that ultimately became a one record deal in 1993 with EMI. And it was with a band I was in called Bloodline. And it was a blues rock band back when blues rock bands were kind of cool. Like you had Brother Kane, which is still out there. Oh, yeah. David uh, Johnson's just put that back together. And we would run into a band called from the Carolinas called A Cry of Love. And Audley Freed, who was a wonderful guitar player, musician, he was in that band. Blew us off the stage multiple times. You know, there was just a, a, a bunch, the Screaming Cheetah Willies and then, you know, the Archangels. And every major record company had a blues rock, 
AOR-based band. We were EMIs. It lasted about three, four years, and it imploded like most bands. And I found myself adrift in Utica, New York, as a, as a teenager without a record deal. I didn't sing. And I said to myself, I said, self, you probably want to learn how to sing so you can at least control enough of your life where you're not reliant on a singer. If you can do it yourself, the only person that can fail you is you. So my manager and I got together and we talked about it and I started making some squeaky demos and took some vocal lessons and kind of went out there and in search of a record deal in which everybody passed, every single one, except for one guy, a guy named Michael Kaplan at Sony Music in the throes of desperation. My manager asked Michael, because he knew him from early days, if he knew any bands that were signed to Sony that needed a guitar player because Joe needed a gig. And we sent him some demos and he calls Roy Bagg and goes, I like it. And Roy goes, well, great, you have, a, you have a, an act that he can go play with? He goes, no, I, I want to sign him. And I was like, okay. Wow. And me, I come down to New York City, which is, it's, it's insane that I'm here now because I used to walk past this building when I lived here the first time going, that's where the big shot. Anyway. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Whatever. Now you the big shot. Yeah, now I have a sign. You know, <laughs> anyway, so that was a that was a big moment in my solo career. So we did one album with Sony. Tom Dowd produced it. Wow. Wow. Which was insane. Tom Dowd is one of the greatest ever. One of the greatest ever and one of the greatest experience and one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life and love the man. And we got dropped about six weeks after the record came out in typical fashion. We then decided, OK, enough is enough. This terrestrial music business isn't, isn't for us. And there was times when we both just said, maybe that we're doomed. We pulled all our money together and we made this record called Blues Deluxe at Bobby Nathan's studio in New York. And we started selling them out of the trunk of our cars. And once we figured that out, that you could make more selling 30,000 copies out of the trunk of your car than you would have if you sold 1.5 million on a major label, the light goes on. Explain to everybody, I mean, you know, well, I'll just say a lot of record deals, a standard would be 85 for the label, 15 for the artist, or 82, 18, and you pay your producer three points. Right. And that's before you get done paying them back. Well, yeah, you're paying them back at your points. And it's criminal. You're not going, hey, we, we you know, we need 100,000 to recoup the record. So the first 100,000 goes to the record company. It doesn't work like that. The first 100,000 goes to the record company, and then they accredit you 15,000 against the 100. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. never, never go out to dinner with your record company and thank them for dinner. Yeah, they, because you paid for it. Because you, you <laughs> paid for it. You paid 15 cents on the dollar for that, that trip. Exactly. To exactly. I learned that when I was a kid. We had that moment, and we started touring, and then we, we met our partner, Ed Venzil, who runs Mascot. And he wanted to license some of the records when we go over to oh, Europe. Know, Ed. First time. Yeah, like around 2003, 2004. And there was something about my music over there that had traveled. We were having a hard time drawing 100 people in the States, getting across the country on our own power. Thank God for people like George Therogood. Thank God for people like Paul Rogers and Bad Company, B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Jethro Tull, that were nice enough to let me open shows because there's no way we could have made it across the country at multiple times yeah and then uh we started to get some traction in europe drawing two three hundred people and we'd come back we just work we we're doing 175 gigs 180 gigs a year just kept working kept plugging a little bit of growth 
a little bit every time. And then we hit the UK. And when we hit the UK, something went from three to 500 immediately. We started selling out in advance, bigger places, thousand. Next thing you know, by 2006, we sold out Shepherd's Bush Empire, which to me, you could have said Wembley Stadium and it would have been the same equivalency. And it was like, oh my God, we actually sold 2,000 hard tickets. Look at me, right? Yeah. So the following couple of tours, it starts to scale. And then we get an opportunity to do the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, man. Dude. We didn't think we were going to sell it out. So we, we said, well, the, into- the entire UK tour is, it, is it one night at the Albert Hall, Monday, May 4th, 2009. And I wrote Mr. Clapton a letter. I'd met him at a, an event a year before, and I wrote Mr. Clapton a letter stating how much the venue meant to me because of the history in which he created in it. And I saw that he was playing there the following week. He was doing his 10-show run or whatever. I said, well, maybe he's around. And he wrote me back and said, yeah, I'll come play a song too. Jesus. Unbelievable. So what do you do when you have Eric Clapton coming? At Royal Albert Hall. And it's 2009, the middle of the financial meltdown. Oh, that's right. Not to be a soothsayer. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You film it. And four years before that, I met Kevin Shirley, who started producing my records. And once he started producing my records, we started going up. By the way, when you say going up, is this live and selling records or just live? Correct. He showed me how to make a real record. And he's like, these are the players you need. And he kept going song, 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 song. He still says song, song, song. I mean, like he just, he's a real producer. And so I'm chronologically a little out of order. But Kevin Shirley is one of the key pivot points in my career in 2005. And we'll be together almost 20 years this year, he and I. So Kevin bids it out. He's producing the DVD and the bill comes in conservatively at $250,000. We don't have $250,000. So we go to Citibank to ask them for a loan. And of course they come back and say, well, we'll, we'll loan you some money, but you know, that's, you know, the banking crisis and stuff like that. You know, years before you could go in with six grand and pull out $3 million. Okay. You know, cause they, anyway, they come back and we're, we will loan you $25,000. We're like, don't waste my time. So we decided to then kind of just tuck our pants into our socks, save every dollar we had, and go all in on the Royal Albert Hall, May 4th, 2009. Kevin's producing it. Eric Clapton's coming. Double band. We had Anton Fig and bogey bowls and horns and this huge thing. Did you actually get $250,000 saved up? We ended up paying for it all. We didn't realize we didn't have to pay it all at once. So, oh, there you go. Because I was going to say, how did you get 250000 that quick? We took some IOUs. Kevin got paid down the line. He, he understood. So we, we were able to cover just the cost. Right, right. And we did a pretty extensive tour going into the thing as a rehearsal and just to kind of generate some money. So out of that 250000 that you needed, what was the, the small amount that you had to come up with to get this job done? Oh, we needed 100 at least to get started. Right. Okay, there you go. And But, you know, that was the equivalent of being at the, the roulette table and going all in on 35 black. Okay? Yeah. That's it. If this thing fails, we're out of business. You're done. And, yeah, maybe I would still have a career, but we would have been out of business. And you have to look at it from those that perspective. It's interesting because let's say you the label gave you a bunch of money and you're only making 15 cents on the dollar. 
And if that failed, you'd still be out of business or you'd owe them forever. You'd be working for them like slaves. And God forbid you sign one of those deals that encapsulate you on a brand level, like like merchandising and what they what they referred to as the 360 deal. Yeah. They really <laughs> owe you. Like you lose your name. Okay. If you if you sign a deal like that as Joe Bonamassa, they own that. The first thing they do is go to the trademark office and trademark your name. So you can't even tour under your name. Yeah. This was the whole Prince thing when he turned his name into a symbol. Yeah. This is the concept of Warner Brothers. So anyway, long story short, we do the gig, it's triumphant. We put the DVD out and it sells okay. And we, but we are able to keep the company going. What's okay? For a DVD, I mean, we're selling 25,000 copies, you know, in the States. It's platinum. It's a platinum DVD now. Woo! Yeah. yeah. And all of this work, all of these experiences, all of these shows and fiscal decisions and business all comes to an apex curve as soon as the Albany affiliate for public broadcasting, PBS, calls our office randomly going, hey, we know Joe's from these parts. Do you think he would be interested in allowing us to use an hour edit of his DVD at Royal Albert Hall for our pledge drive? I'm like, yeah, I'll be the annoying concert on PBS that they break into every five minutes to ask for money. I was like, great. You know, and, we, and we've been hoping PBS would approach us. So we come out in 2009, late summer 2009, and this thing explodes. When I tell you it explodes because it's TV and you know in LA, channel eight is PBS, channel seven is ABC. There's no differentiation anymore because the big cable companies were 500 channels and people would flip through and just see people like concerts. Yeah. Next thing you know, I'm the edgiest thing on PBS for years. You know, it's like Lawrence Welk and Reading Rainbow and, and the Celtic women and me, you know, <laughs> I stick out. And these things start scoring high numbers as far as the pledge drives and the tickets just go crazy. And that was the big moment in which put me on the map in a sense where I was like, I went from a thousand seats to 3,500 seats. It was a roller coaster ride. And it was like being shot out of a cannon. But with that, I will say this, everything that I worked for was coming to fruition. Everything that Roy and I and Kevin and the entire team worked for had come to fruition right in front of our eyes really damn quick. There was no crossfade. It was like brick wall. What I will say to anyone in the business or anybody who has a business that's about to enter the salad years is two things. One, congratulations. And two, most importantly, be prepared to work harder than you ever have in your life to maintain. And that's been the last 16 years for me. Well, the thing that's real clear to me, and uh, I can totally relate, is that all of this hard work, which uh, obviously nobody had to tell you to practice and nobody had to tell you to, you know, you self-motivate yourself. But the, the bottom line is, this is all driven by passion. It's not up here, man. It's coming from here. It's like you love what you do. And when you love what you do, that's how you overcome the setbacks and the obstacles. What was fueling you? That something was fueling you to keep going. And it was because you love to play guitar. You love music, right? It was this blind belief in myself. And Roy and I have the same thing. We, we were like Marines. Okay. It's, that's a false equivalency, but we have the mentality. It's like, you're going to get knocked down. It's going to be a struggle. Life is a struggle. 
we're not a victim of anything other than what we choose to sabotage ourselves. So if we don't want to sabotage ourselves, then you're going to be completely in the driver's seat when your opportunity comes, you know, because when your opportunity comes, that's when you hit the gas. But if you're not in the driver's seat and the engine's not running, that latency could push you back. I will say this. I've had a lot of people help me over the years and it takes a village. I mean, I'm, I'm the face and the brand of it, but without Roy, without Kevin, without any of these people, everyone from Rachel Iverson, who runs our office and Sal DiMartino and Bobby Akizian and Tamara, people go like, oh, you have, you have a good credit score. I go, Tamara. Okay. She's the one who pays it on time. You know, I'm like, cause I'm not, I'm on the road, you know, and So at the end of the day, you know, I'm extraordinarily lucky and fortunate to be in this position in life at 45 years old after doing this for 34 years. But at the end of the day, I also feel that if I didn't push myself and continue to push myself, that I'd be an also ran and maybe it never was, you know, I just couldn't do it. The fire burned too passionately for me to sit there and go, well, you know, I'll get around to it. Or I don't really care. No, you you got to care, and you got to care, and you got to want it more than the next guy. That's the simple simple fact. Well, you picked what you care most about. I mean, that's and it's music. And I have a feeling you would be great at anything that you love doing. I mean, do you have like other? If it's not music, is there any other one other thing you like doing? Or what if you? What if suddenly you know people always ask, well, "What did you do if you didn't play drums? You weren't in music." I said, "I'd figure it out." Yeah. I'd figure it out. I mean, I'm going to eventually be drawn to something. Maybe it's mud wrestling. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, if I want to start a nursery on Ventura Boulevard, I'd have the best damn cactuses in, in L.A. County. I want to win. I want to win. I don't want to place or show. That's the Italian in me talking. And that's the New Yorker in me talking. Yeah. And it's just the way I'm wired, you know? That's great. And it's not that I want to see other people lose. I don't want to win at others' expense. I want to plow a lane of my own in which I can then turn and look back and help people use the lane to get where they want to be. And we've done that for the last decade. You know, we started a 501c3 called Keeping the Blues Alive. Now it's a label. We've done records for everyone from Jimmy Hall to, to Larry McRae, Joanne Shaw Taylor, produced records for Eric Gales. It's like, listen, there's the lane. We're just the snowplow. You know, we've, we've kind of forged the lane for ourselves and, and not at anybody's expense. There's plenty of room in any genre of music for good, old-fashioned, friendly competition that I think makes everybody better. If Gary Clark Jr. comes out and makes the hell of a record, I want to be like, okay, let's get to work. Don't get complacent. Like, you know, respond to it in a friendly, non-competitive way. Be like, man, we got to up our game. He's killing it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Shepard, man, it's like, they're killing it. We, we can't sit here and just do the same old thing. You know? So it's, it's the way I'm wired. That's great. Well, no, that's huge. I, I, I totally can relate to that. And, you know, like I said, you don't want to set it and forget it. As soon as you set it and forget it, you're done. And you, you're getting the most value out of life. It's a short life. So why not get the most value out of this short life, you know, we have? It's good to be self-aware that you are wired that way so you can take advantage of, like, this is what I am. This is what I do. It doesn't matter if I'm growing plants or playing the blues. You own it. You have to own it. You, it's your responsibility. Yes. doesn't matter how big an artist you get, how many private jets you charter, okay? 
you're responsible for a lot of people's livelihoods. I look around and I, we have four buses, three trucks, okay? A lot of people pushing stuff, setting stuff up, making sure that this idiot looks okay at eight o'clock. I wake up every day going, I'm responsible for tenured people that have children in college. Yeah. Their livelihoods, you know? I mean, like you have to look at it from that point of view. That's great. Hey, so did you ever, I mean, was it always the blues or did you ever want to be Eddie Van Halen, you know, or, you know, something that was like prog rock? Or, wasn't there something I read about UFO? I auditioned for UFO, yeah. Yeah, so I did Pete Way's last record. Oh, you did? Oh, he was such a nice guy. I didn't get to meet him. He didn't meet him? No, I was doing it here and he was not healthy to travel. But, oh man, I loved, I mean, his feel and the melodies and the hook lines and so what I'm saying is like, yeah, you made it as a blues guitarist, but if you joined UFO, you would have been a rock. Yeah. And, you know, I always say when the arrows start coming my way, it's like, he's not a real blues guitar player. And I never said I was one. I said, yeah. I love yes songs. Okay. Okay. I learned all, I, I, you know, I, I love selling England by the pound. Okay. I'm a Steve Hackett guy. Okay. Uh, I'm a Michael Stanker guy, you know, and a Richie Blackmore guy. I think life would be boring. If I only played one style of music all the time, that's not to slight anybody who does it that way because everybody has their process, but I'm ADHD in life and I'm ADHD in music. It's like, I want to try that. I want to try to get that sound. You know, I mean, when Hot for Teacher came out, you're like, holy crap. Oh my God, no. The swagger and, and, and you're just going, it didn't sound real. You know what I mean? It's like eruption. Yeah. And it sounded sped up, but you go to tune one of these things and you realize that it's like oh no he's playing in regular tuning so there's no trick there you know he was a game changer and same thing with hendrix and mick ralphs paul kossoff i mean those kind of guys those were my guys because they were rock but they had a blues edge to them and they had great songs in this big les paul tone that i always wanted to get and, and so my career is we've done all kinds of records, not just blues. We've done trad blues, but I've also done records with Glenn Hughes and Jason Bonham, Derek Sermini. We're about to do our fifth one. That's straight up 70s, heavy rock, British rock. I like to know that I can speak all the languages, you know, and, and you have to exercise that. If you speak French, but you don't speak French for 20 years, you're rusty. So I like to try to keep my thing fresh. All that stuff, though, influences what you do in your own music. That's the beauty of it. All that stuff. You're a guy who wants to keep learning. And why not learn from the best? I mean, Richie Blackmore is the best at being Richie Blackmore. Hendrix is the best at being... Oh, are you kidding me? That's incredible. You, you're inspired by that. You're never going to sound like those guys. But you can grab something and then you bring it into your style of music. You create your own thing from all of that, you know? Everybody is, is an amalgamation of their influences. There's very, very few people that are immaculate conception guitar players. And maybe, you know, like Warren Hayden says it best about Albert King. He's the only person I can think of that was an immaculate conception guitar player where nobody played like him before. And then everybody was like, oh, wow, this is devastating. But then you figure out, well, Albert King, his born name is Albert Nelson. Jimmy Vivino told me that Albert Nelson played drums with Jimmy Reed. He was a drummer. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. King was a drummer. His born name is Albert Nelson. He'll win Rock and Roll Jeopardy at any bar, okay, with this fact. Look it up. It's, it's, it's on Wikipedia. He played drums with Jimmy Reed. Jeez. So 
he was coming from a totally different point of view. You know, I mean, so when he picked up the guitar upside down, he invented this thing that created riffs and tunings. He took the guitar that was a fixed instrument and went, nah, I'm not buying this. I'm going to do it upside down. I'm going to tune it to, was an open F or whatever, you know, it's, there was the Albert King tune, open G minor and coming up with all these different positions and nobody sounded like him. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I think that finding solutions to problems or finding solutions to things in general requires creativity. You know what I mean? So this guy created his thing. He obviously did the guitar upside down. He was trying to figure out how to do something with this creative mind and his open mind. He created his thing. So which leads me to like, you said you did all these records, including the live ones. What is your approach? Do you have a method? to let's say you're going to start a record next month. How does that process start? Do you watch cartoons? Do you watch movies? You know what I mean? What is your method? You know what I start doing is sometimes I stop myself if I'm talking to someone and I hear somebody say something clever, you know? One of our songs that we play almost every night is, is a song called Just Because You Can Don't Mean You Should. And I wrote it with my friend Tom Hambridge. And I just remember watching some one of those crazy shows on TV. It's almost like, what was it, Jackass? Or it was, it was like, where people just do dumb stuff that could get them killed, like with golf carts. Like, let's jump golf carts. And then they fall off and they're hauled off in an ambulance. And I just remember, like, I was riffing about that with Tom. And I said, man, just, you know, sometimes just because you can don't mean you should. And he goes, there's the song. Let's write it. And we just did. So when you're in the writing process, you, you have to be kind of conscious of, these little nuggets that sometimes, because we're all, we're all characters, you know, and if you could say it in a way that's your own, like Eric Gales is a master at that. When we worked on his record, he didn't have any songs and his whole record came out of a single conversation that he and uh, our co-producer Josh Smith had at Josh's studio in Tarzana. And he was just going off and I'm just listening. Josh is talking and I'm not saying much because I'm on my phone going, that's a great way to say that. So we wrote all these songs based on what he was saying and tried to write them in his own voice, you know? And when we would approach him with lyrics, it would be like, Eric, he's like, man, I'm not feeling it. I'm like, okay, great. How do you feel? Like, what would you do? Like, the same sentiment, now tell me how you would say that yourself, you know? Because then, then it becomes his own. So that's what I try to do is try to just collect little nuggets because starting with lyrics is so much easier if you have a good set of lyrics. Oh, really? Because if you're just jamming, you're like, okay, what do you want to say? Well, I woke up this morning. Oh, God, not again, please. Yeah, not again. I woke up this morning. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) No. (laughs) Do you ever like write a song from like a hook line? Yeah. You know, like a melody or or if you're working on, because, you know, you're probably always working on tones and this and that or tunings and stuff. Does that ever like send you into an inspiration? You know, it's funny. I was I, I was in uh, Abbey Road Studios and I was co-writing with Bernie Mars to, from Whitesnake. And this was for our album Royal Tea um, that we did in January of 2020 in London. Unbeknownst to us, something was about to happen in the next couple yeah. of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Seemed pretty normal to me. And we were about to wrap up for the day. We'd already wrote one really good song that made the record. And we're in this little room upstairs at Abbey Road. I dragged some gear up and, you know, and you playing loud. And the old lady next door would be like, are you done yet? You know, like, like this is a studio. Talk to the men. Which studio was it? Because I've recorded there. Abbey Road. But which room? 
it's Atlantic Studios off property that are around the corner. It's like, it's a studio. We're supposed to play loud. Anyway, we ended up writing a song on the spot because he was curious that how my Marshall Blues Breaker sounded with his 59 Les Paul. And I said, well, let's plug it in before we go. And I'm just showing him, you know, diamond and everything. And I start playing this riff and he goes, there's a song. We wrote it in a half hour. Wow. You know, and you never know when it's going to happen, but you have to kind of be in a position when you start writing. Sometimes you have to write a couple of duds just to get the wheels. Cause I don't write every day. You know, I, I'm not one of those guys with, you know, like Dylan, where he's constantly with a pad and writing stuff. Yeah. Right. What about like, do you ever think about, Oh my God, I got to stay relevant. I mean, you know, we're getting stuck in this place. I mean, and, and things, things start changing around, you know, in the world, not just in music, obviously. How do you, relate to trying to stay relevant because creative ideas do help you become or stay relevant. But when I was with Mellencamp, I mean, that was the, it was always like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my record deal. I'm going to lose my record deal. He was demanding us. He'd say, Yuxin, you guys, I need ideas. I need ideas to get these songs on the radio. And I know he was trying to stay relevant. Nah, we've done that before. We got to do that. But he was trying to be, you know, in the top 10 on the Billboard Top 100 singles that's a whole different competition right there yeah i will say this about relevancy in terms of my career i've never been never will be okay i do a very specific thing i know exactly what the fans want to hear so the question is, is would you rather please the critics at rolling stone or please the fans that put you there my answer unequivocally is please the fans that put you there so if that means once a record, there's a big sludgy blues rock song with an overblown solo at the end. I'm doing it because <laughs> yeah. that's what people seem to enjoy. I'm not the one that's going to come out, drastically change the show. I'm like, you know, I, I'm not feeling playing guitar and I'm just going to stand up here and sing for you. What are you crazy? This is what they paid for. This is the experience that you're selling. And I find now that looking at the guitar world in general in 2023, I find it in a state of crossroads because people have learned how to make real money by sitting in front of a camera and putting it on Instagram or YouTube and becoming an influencer, which is great. I encourage anybody with a, a business model to do it like that. How long you can stay inspired doing one minute videos is up to the individual. And I find that if I feel the need to stay relevant because I haven't posted something in a minute. And I just go, well, here, let me, I haven't played guitar today, but let me tune this Les Paul up and do a one minute video. I've been guilty of this in the past where that one minute that it took me to film something, one take and just throw it on Instagram was the only minute of music I had made that entire day. And I was like, that's not for me. That's crossing a line where your inspiration is the dopamine that you're going to get from the comment section of your social media. You know what I mean? That seems a little, for me personally, that that's not the kind of lifestyle I want to live. But if I don't feel like playing guitar today, like I haven't played guitar in a week. We got off tour last week. I haven't picked one up and I live in a house of guitars. There's tons of them. Right. You have, you have a ridiculous collection. Your house is your museum, right? And that's where all the guitars are. Most of the guitars are at my house in Los Angeles. The collecting part of it, that's a different career. You know, it's a different type of thing. And, you know, people are curious about it. And I just said, well, my dad was a guitar dealer in a different life. And I grew up in a music store. 
And I always loved old guitars. And when I could start affording them, I started just buying vintage guitars. And luckily, I started buying vintage guitars when they weren't as expensive as they, as they are now. And I could get better deals, you know. But the thing about collecting is I look, I, people are going, oh, my God, they come to my house and they're overwhelmed. And it's overwhelming. <laughs> if I went into it blind, not knowing what to expect or just seeing a few pictures on Instagram, the sheer magnitude of it all would overwhelm <laughs> even the most jaded collector. But the difference is I live there. So I wake up, I get my coffee. There's hundreds of guitar amps. Around. It doesn't matter. You know, it's organized hoarding. It's decor, memorabilia. But when they get down to asking the critical questions, it's why? Well, I have an addictive personality. My answer is always, if you have to ask that question, why? Then you don't get what it's like being a collector. Because there's a certain thing about collecting that you are, you're doing something temporarily that will eventually be broken up into bits. Like I know 500 guitars, 500 amps, 1,000, 1,200 pieces in the collection. Eventually, I'm not going to be around. And this whole thing, yeah, this Nerdville Gotham sign may either be thrown away in the dump or some kid will have it in his basement going, I got Bonamassa's old sign. You know, but while they're under my custodianship, my job is to preserve them and love them and promote them. You know what I mean? Meaning that like, Here's a 54 Les Paul in pretty darn good condition, you know? And so I got it in this condition. And my job is to play it, love it, use it live, but don't beat the hell out of it so you don't recognize it. My ego is not that big to go, well, I'm just going to destroy this guitar in service of my music. It's like, you could do that with a new guitar. You don't need to do it with this one. It all sounds the same. You keep everything you buy or you sell and buy other things. Is there that kind of thing? I remember I was in the studio and John Shanks bought a, it was at Henson, and he says, oh my God, look at this. It was a Les Paul he bought, might've been 285,000 or something. But he said, I had to sell three others to get this. Would you start collecting Sunburst Les Pauls and Flying Vs and all that high-end stuff? It's expensive game. But you know, what I do is you could tell, you know, like I'm more businessman than I am musician in a lot, a lot of ways, the way my head is wired is I always remember the CEO of General Electric and my manager and I always talk about this. His whole thing was you have to clear out the bottom 10% every year. In his case, it was kind of cold and heartless. He was talking about employees. So he would take the, the bottom 10, performing 10% of his, his employees and lay them off and bring in new people, hopefully to raise the baseline. So maybe the guitars think I'm cold and heartless, but what I do is every year, I take stock of what we have and I may sell 5% just to go, you know what? I'm never going to get to this. I'm never going to play it. It's just, it was something, the addiction was roaring. I was in Des Moines, Iowa. And so I'll quietly take down five, maybe 6%. Or if, you know, if somebody like really wants something, it's like my, here's my dream guitar. I've been looking for my whole life here is a, is a 54 Les Paul. I'll be like, you can have it. Not for free, but you can have it. You know what I mean? I got six or seven of these. You know, the sentimentality factor comes into that. You know, if you're not sentimental about stuff, and then there's certain things you're going to bury me with. Okay, and it's just non-negotiable. Do you have a favorite guitar out of that collection, or a favorite five? It depends. You know, they're all tools, and there's not one size fits all. I'm not like I'm not like a Rory Gallagher type, neither musically or yeah, you know, on stage. 
Like Rory played that Strat a lot, but he had a big guitar collection, but he played that Strat and he could basically do his whole show on that Strat. I can't do that. I need the Les Paul for this song. I need the Telly for this song. So, I mean, there's my, there's ones you just go, these, this is a great instrument, you know? But it's the same thing of like wooden snare, brass snare. You can't just go, well, this is what I always use. You got to service the music. You know, I used to, back in the day when, you know, I had drums in New York, Nashville, L.A., Indiana, Japan, Germany. You know, when we were selling records, they'd fly me everywhere. And when that changed, that's why I moved to L.A. and I got my own studio, Uncommon Studios. But I remember when I'd have the cartridge guys just bring these 100 snare drums. A hundred. hundred, yeah. But the thing is, it would always end up being these three. You know, and the other thing is, Back in the day when the budgets were big, you know, you could spend weeks making a record and then everybody was like, oh, what snare are you going to use on this song? Now, I mean, I just come in and it's, it's my hands that make the changes. Wood versus metal, shallow versus deep, of course. But this is really one snare drum, one or two, it's my own model that covers everything now, you know, just does. It seems to work sonically. Yeah, and, you know, there used to be, you hear about these stories of like, you know, it took six weeks to find a comfortable chair at 2,500 a day. Yeah, exactly. it took us a week to get drum sounds. A week? A yeah, week. A whole record, you know? <laughs> and again, it's like in the business now, it's like whatever digit was in that first number, okay? Whether you spend $300,000 on a record or $3 million, no matter what strap. Now you drop a zero on the right side, and that's pretty much what your budget is. Now it's 30000 300,000. If you sold 3 million, now you may sell 300,000. If you sold 300,000, you'd be lucky to sell 30,000. And that's pretty much the business because I'm talking to you on a laptop that doesn't even have a CD player. I don't have a CD player in this apartment. I don't get who's buying. I haven't seen a record store in a while for a while. I mean, there's, yeah, they sell vintage vinyl and a few CDs, but it never it used to be like the Virgin Mega Store and all this stuff. Long gone. Uh, well, you know, I remember when it went from LPs to cassettes. I went, okay, you can put the cassette in the car. But then when it went to CDs, I'm like, okay, okay, this is it, right? This is it. No, no. It went to the iPod, to streaming, to downloading, to YouTube, which is, if YouTube is the biggest platform for listening to music, which is free, free. It's like, I wish uh, airplane tickets were free, and I wish groceries were free, and I wish gas was free. But now business, all of a sudden, our main product. Is free. Unbelievable. And, you know, it was funny, you know, like, you know, because I have yeah, friends in the movie business and stuff like that. And they always used to glow. It's like, oh, well, we still, we're still killing it at the box office. I said, it's going to happen to you eventually. Yeah, of course. Look out. Yeah. Then stick around. Stick around. Stick around long enough and you're going to find it. And look at it now. It's $10 a month for your streaming service. And you can watch anything, anytime you want, however you want. And the box office is down. But that's how they used to pay for the movies, you know? So you can't spend $300 million on a blockbuster unless there's going to be people paying $20 a ticket to go see it, you know? And, and that's, that's a big deal. That's a real big deal. You know, so that kid from Napster ruined it all. <laughs> well, mate, the labels didn't embrace it at first, but they sure scored in the end. And they were arrogant about it. They tried to just snuff them out. Yeah, they tried to snuff them out. But they, they won because they owned the masters. You know, for people who don't understand this, it's like when you get a record deal, oh, here's money to make the record. But in that contract, in most cases, 
the record label owns those master recordings and they eventually sold those master recordings to iTunes and Spotify at humongous dollars because they own those final recordings, you know. I redid my Sharona, note for note, so I can write every note out because the band, the two remaining guys in the band, the singer and the drummer were dead. Feiger and Bruce Gary is the drummer. So whoever owned the master could say, if let's say uh, a movie was being made, they wanted to use my Sharona. And the people on the mask would say, wow, that's going to cost you half a million dollars. Well, the band might have sold it for 100000 or lease it for 100000 So I redid every single note. I asked for every mic position, and I, redid, and I wrote everything out, and it was like way more complicated than I realized. But point is, I duplicated what the drummer had done. Then they took the second best vocal. Apparently, they could do that. And they replaced the bass and the, the guitars, and all of a sudden, they now had a, a version of my Sharona that sounded like the original. So they can control, but that's rare. They can license it themselves. And, and we've been doing this our whole careers. You know, we own every piece of catalog. We own all the memories. Oh, and, man. And the reality is, is there is money to be made in streaming if you're the holder of the master recordings. Yes. So you go down the street. I live close to Columbus Circle here. In New York, you can walk just down the street from my apartment building and you can see Universal Music. They're still operating. And what they are now is their catalog management and basically their entire catalog, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of recordings are now available for streaming. And they're they're just sitting there making fractional pennies every time somebody clicks on a Universal own and they get a big check either at the end of the year or quarterly, however they whatever they work their deals out at. And it's way more profitable doing it that way than it is to pay songwriters, oh my God, God forbid, and packaging CDs, shipping CDs, having return reserves, having the Harry Fox, you know, the old Harry Fox situation where the songwriters collective and checks, have, you know, and the producers get screwed, the songwriters get screwed, and the artist gets nothing, nothing, unless they own their master recordings. And now you're starting to see hedge fund banks buying master recordings from artists directly and they're paying 25 times on the hot one 25 times uh epida or whatever they want to call it or so artists that are in their late 60s or 70s going you're just giving you're giving me a check for the rest of my life i'm done i don't have to collect anything anymore you know and there's a law that at a certain point i don't know if it's 25 years or 35 years those masters that you recorded and that the label owns they come back to the artist or the songwriters. And that's where you're seeing them going like, do you know what? I mean, Springsteen sold his masters for, uh, I think, $500 million. Why wouldn't he? And then you can also put it in, you know, annuities, there's different ways you can construct it, where it can be, you know, be passed on to your kids and whatever. But it's interesting, an interesting time. So, okay, I got to ask you about the glasses thing because I'm a glass guy. I put glasses, it was an accident. My kid put them on me as I was walking on stage for the very first uh, Smashing Pumpkins concert I ever did when I did the Adore Tour in 1998. It was like yellow goggles. They matched my shirt. I had a yellow stripe down a black shirt. I said, hey, yeah, sure. If my kid wants me to wear them, I'm wearing them. And the next day in the paper, all they, talk, they didn't even talk about my drumming. They talked about my glasses. So I went, all right. I guess that's what I do now. And I didn't know any, nobody talked about branding back then. So I remember finally I went, this is stupid. I took them off and I got more crap for not wearing them. So I put them back on. So it became my thing. 
You know, lucky me, I got a brand. So, but, and you look great with glasses. Is it the same thing or? Well, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. So I have this thing when I used to play clubs, like real, we were playing pretty modest places. If you were lucky, if you were playing like the Mason jar outside of Phoenix, they have lights in coffee cans and they turn them on. (laughs) As my, as my fortune started to grow a little bit and we started graduating to small theaters, we actually had uh, was people that would operate spotlights and I'm very light sensitive. So if there's like a real bright light, I squint a lot and I sometimes tear up and it's very distracting. So when I'm on stage now, there's two 40,000 watt spotlights center stage coming in hot. The glasses, it takes the 2K off so I can concentrate and it just, it does that. When I get off stage, I don't wear the glasses and I'll walk around any, I could walk around anywhere, anytime and with a baseball hat on, no glasses and nobody will even give me a second look, even outside of my own concerts. I can just go right to the bus. looks like a roadie, you know, the minute I put these on, yeah, something happens. And like, are you Joe? And I'm like, yeah. you should just ask the glasses. <laughs> I know, but it's true though. And then it just became a thing, you know? Yeah. It just became a thing. And I become the, you know, in 2006, my producer, Kevin said, Hey, listen, you need to start dressing up better than your audience. You look like a slob up there sometimes. And I was like, Oh, don't worry about jeans and a shirt. And he goes, that's not star time. He goes, ask your friend, BB King. He dresses up. It's star time. I'm going to go say no more. So then I started wearing these stupid suits. And then I found a couple of brands that fit me. Next thing you know, I became the guy in the suit and the glasses. And it was just kind of at that point, searching for something that an image to put to this sound. And that was it, you know, and it was just the, it was a perfect storm of things happening all at the same time. It was the record, the ballad of John Henry did so great that it was, you know, the follow-ups and then the PBS stuff and then becoming the guy in the suit. Next thing you know, here we go. The key thing is, and it works real well for you, it looks real. It looks authentic. It's not like you just put something on, like, it looks like that's what you should be wearing. And it goes with your music. And so it's, it's, a, it's a complete package. I credit the influence of two sources. One, I was flipping through a book about the blues. And I, I come upon a picture of, and it's a pretty famous photo, Muddy Waters in a backstage area in the UK. And he's got this great custom suit on. There's a bottle of Johnny Walker Black on the table. You just go, these guys were the coolest, right? You're just like, this is the shit. And I'm the biggest Clapton fan in the world. I remember seeing Eric Clapton on the Journeyman tour when they branded him the Armani Blues Man, when he was dressing up in the suits. And I go, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I said, we just try that. And it worked, you know, it just worked. This is kind of a crazy question, but is there anything that you haven't done that you want to do? Do you think like that? Or do you have a five-year plan? Somebody once asked me that, and it's just like, I went, what? I just dig what I'm doing. I'm just doing what I'm doing. I still like to play drum. But some people have that kind of, you know, five-year plan. They go, and this is what I'm going to do at some point. Do you have that, or you just dig what you're doing and just, just take it one day at a time? You know, I'm not a lifer. There'll be a second act at some point. I make this deal with myself. As long as I can keep up, sing and play at what I think is the best or at a higher level. The minute those skills start to erode and it just becomes like a a slow descent back down the mountain, then it's time for me to hang it up. 
And, you know, you want to go out on top. You want to go out making your best music of your life. We've all known and seen artists that spend a little bit too much time either on the road or doing their thing. And it becomes, the word is not a legacy act. It, it becomes like you're just going to see them to pay tribute to what it was. Yeah, 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 what it was. You got to know when to shut it down. You know, there's a lot of people that don't, don't want to even acknowledge that. They think they're going to be 25 forever. That's, that's, that's not true. That's not me. I mean, we're playing the Hollywood Bowl. We're headlining the Hollywood Bowl this year. That's a big deal. I mean, how many times have we been stuck on Highland going up to 101? <laughs> I mean, cursing the, the shows. Going, You're going to be. Damn bull shows. They're, 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 they're 45 minutes to the valley just to, just to get to Coanga. I want to be one. I want in. I want to be one. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be pissing off a lot of people outside the show. Jamming up Franklin, Highland, La Brea. I want it all. Bar him. <laughs> yeah. I want it all. I want to be responsible for that at least one time in my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I get it, man. That's the coolest feeling when you're there and you realize, you know, you know what it's like to be outside and wondering who's playing tonight. Oh, man, look at all this traffic. And now you're that person. It's the greatest. You know, it's a few places, venues like that. You played Red Rocks. You did a live record there. Madison Square Garden, maybe the form Royal Albert Hall. I mean, you hit, those are the big ones. Madison Square Garden, Royal Albert Hall, maybe Red Rocks, the Hollywood Bowl form. It's not lost on me. Like, I go get my Diet Cokes and water, and I have to walk past Carnegie Hall. I've done two nights there, and I'm three blocks away from Radio City. I mean, I, I've hit it all. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's great. That's good. I'll... Carnegie Hall, though, is, is one of those venues where we were warned going in about sonically. It's not designed for electric music, so we did an acoustic show. Oh, you did? Smart. Yeah. So we're, I don't know what they call them, the, the, the sticks, the, the half, uh, they're, they're like a, a bunch of um, skewers together you're not using a full stick on a snare it's like you've seen you know oh yeah the root yeah the root if rick firth makes it the rooties are blast sticks or yeah sticks, yeah it's to take it down a peg or you, it's, a, it's a less intense and i remember being at carnegie hall and anton fig he just sits down to the drum kit and i know I, I just sit down in the center for the first time and go, wow look at this this is like let me pull this off carnegie hall and all he did was take one of those little half stick things and he hit the snare once, and it was like somebody shot off a gun. I'm like, <laughs> whoa, yeah. whoa. And yeah. it was intense. I can't imagine even attempting an electric show in there. In their defense, it was designed for recitals, opera singers, violinists, piano players. Going back to the late 1800s, there was no amplification. There was no PA. So it, it was designed to be a live room that you could just sing in and 2,600 people can see it, you know, and hear it. But, you know, here we are, this rock and rollers coming in, thinking we know it all and then start banging on stuff. And it's like, whoa. I bet you there was a time that the people who booked that place said, we're not letting the rock and roll people in here. But the almighty dollar was like, hey, if we can book more shows, bring them in. Yeah. There's those great videos, okay, of Albert Collins, Roy Buchanan, and Lonnie Mack live at Carnegie Hall. Couldn't imagine what it sounded like on the night. It had to be deafening because all those guys at that point in time in their career were like, I don't care where we are. The amp goes to here. This is it. No exceptions. You know, everybody was just dying. Wow. Joe, um, awesome, awesome, awesome hanging with you. You know, usually when I see you, it's like I'm on stage. You come up, blow everybody away, and then you take off. And we had dinner a couple of weeks ago, which was awesome. 
but uh, I feel like I got to know you even more. This, you know, even though we've known each other forever. We've known each other forever. And our musical adventures are always great because it, it always involves a very, very eclectic group of music that you guys have to learn. And I'm brought in as the blues guy. And I was you and Carmine, Carmine Rojas, the bass player. It's like, listen, don't worry about me. Okay. <laughs> We're going to play the blues. Okay. We don't have to rehearse this, you know? Yeah, but I like to do it right. And your songs are badass. You got an edge. You got that New York Italian edge. And my mom grew up in the Bronx, my dad in Patterson. So I can relate to that. So I'm just like, whoa, you, you're mellow. But when you get on that guitar and you start singing, there's some attitude. And I love it. I completely, it sparks me. I'm a nice guy, but I play with bad intentions. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what well, Joe, man, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I cannot wait to see you again. And I'm going to call you the unstoppable Joe Bonamassa now. That's your name. Thank you very much. All right, man.